We are in week number nine of our fall discipleship series. Can you believe we've been doing this for nine weeks already? On-the-job training. Um, To follow Jesus means not only to know things about him, but to learn how to live the way that he did, Um, not as a prerequisite to being a follower, but we learn as we go, right? We, We follow Jesus, and he teaches us to live the way that he does as we go. And so... Uh, we are on week number nine. Um, before we jump into the text, though, I have a, a question for us this morning. Um, it's kind of a time of changing seasons. There's things that kick off, new things start that kind of help us understand what the, the season is, right? So for me, it's playoff baseball time. Um, haven't watched as many games as I would have liked at this point, but I catch what I can. I love the intensity of October baseball. Um, NFL season's well underway, so some of if you're into that, like that's your thing. Um, pumpkin spice lattes are back, so apparently some people are excited about that. Um, but there's something that started Friday evening that is a particular marker for many people um, that Christmas is on its way. Any, any ideas, and feel free to shout out, what started Friday night that indicates Christmas is coming. Any, any thoughts? It didn't snow. It's a good guess. This is something that's scheduled. It happens every year at the same time. What's that? No, no Christmas parade yet. Any guesses? Uh, Friday night started the Hallmark Channel's Christmas countdown. Um. Is there anybody that's excited about Hallmark Christmas movies, yeah? All right, so the altars are still open. You can come and repent. Um, no, I, I, they're not my favorite. <laughs> uh, I have a reputation uh, in my house of ruining Hallmark Christmas movies. Uh, it's a well-deserved reputation. Um, and for me, like, I, I'm sorry if you enjoy them. For, they're just not for me. That's... Um, and the biggest problem for me is that they're, they're predictable. I mean, and I think that's why people like them. Is they, you, at the beginning, you kind of know how they're going to end, and it brings some sort of sense of comfort. And, but it's just so predictable. Um, and so, like, when I sit with, with Jessica, because she enjoys them, uh, if I haven't completely ruined them for her yet, um, and... You know, they introduce characters and the plot starts to build. And I'm like, well, th- this is how it's going to end. And she's like, it's good. You know, I'm like, I just saved you two hours. Um, I just, it's, it's too, I, I like movies that have a, a plot twist, right? Like, those are, those are my favorite types of things. Things that catch me by surprise. It's probably the overthinker in me. I'm always analyzing, trying to figure out how things go. So if a movie catches me off guard... Um, I feel like it's done something. I enjoy that experience of being surprised. Um, So movies, and and I'm not promoting these or telling you should go watch them, but some of you may have seen them. Movies like The Sixth Sense, where at the end you realize you have missed the point the entire time. Or Interstellar. Anybody like Interstellar? That's one of my favorites. Um, There's some other movies too that, uh, again, like Matrix, stuff like that, where they introduce a surprise. uh, And there's probably better movies I could give as an example, but I... Not thinking them off the top of my head. Um, but there's a plot twist. There's a moment in the story where what you thought has been happening didn't happen. And that twist catches us off guard and draws us in and keeps our attention focused on something new. 
It's familiar. We've been experiencing it the whole time. We've been watching the movie. We've been reading the book. We've been following along the whole time. But the way we perceive the information, the expectations of of what was going to happen, our assumptions um, were challenged. Um, I love a good plot twist. And so I really love when Jesus tells stories because I think the plot twist is one of his most used uh, literary devices. He loves to tell stories that upend people's assumptions, that get you to a point where you think you know the answer and he either asks another question or he makes you go, what just happened? And our scripture for today is one of those stories where the assumption, the, what you think you know about people, um, what you think you know about something, a situation or a circumstance is completely upended um, by a new detail or um, by a pronouncement. Usually for, for Jesus, it's an announcement of, of what God's kingdom is like or who God is, what God's nature is, right? And so that's what happens this, this morning. And, and, and this parable that we're going to look at here in a moment is even made more interesting by the fact that we have grown, many of us have been in the church for a long period of time and have grown familiar with these types of categories that Jesus is working with. And so we have another layer of assumptions built on top of it. And this will all make sense in a minute, hopefully. Um, our scripture story this morning is, is, comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It'll be on the screens, or if you want to use, you know, uh, your device, if you have an app on your, your phone or whatever, if you brought your Bible, or if you don't, there's some scattered throughout under the, under the chairs there. Um, but Luke 18, 9, <coughs> 9 through 14, I'm getting all choked up about it. Um, it goes like this he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector the Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus God I thank you that I am not like other people thieves, rogues, adulterers and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector standing far off would not even look up to heaven. He was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would gather our minds that they may be one with you. Open our ears that we may hear your word. Soften our hearts that we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. So Jesus tells these stories and we call them parables, right? The, these, these stories that are, are not intended to be historical, um, but they contain truth, right? Like it's maybe a story that Jesus is making up or a story that's well known in their culture, but there's a deep truth in it, right? Um, so he's telling the story. It doesn't matter if there actually was this Pharisee and this tax collector. The, the truth comes 
out of what you understand at the end. Um, and so this is how Jesus does. He teaches parables, he teaches stories that deal with very common everyday things and, and the plot twist, the, the challenge, the wisdom comes from how he defines what God is doing in these stories. Um, and so in the parable today, Jesus tells the story of two individuals who'd gone up to the temple to pray and what's interesting is that the Bible tells us that they were both standing alone, far off, right? Um, they went to the temple to pray, which you'd think is a good thing for both of them to have gone, but only one walks away justified in the words of Jesus. He says he's justified. And so this is what Jesus is doing to us this morning. He says, over here we have a Pharisee, and if you don't know what a Pharisee is, it's a religious leader of the day. Um, we as, as Christians have, have gotten to the point where we know that Jesus picks on the Pharisees sometimes, and points out what's wrong with them. So we might think that Pharisees had a bad reputation, that they were bad people. But in the days of Jesus, Pharisees were religious leaders who took the law, the Torah, the teaching very seriously. Um, they said, if, if, if you're supposed to do this in the temple, to be clean, to be in the presence of God, then, then maybe uh, we should do that everywhere. Right? They took the teaching very seriously and tried to apply it to their lives. So what was the rule for the temple became the rule for their home, the rule for their table. And so um, while we may look at Pharisees and say, oh, they're not the greatest people because we've read Jesus picking on them already, their culture was said, these are holy people. These are people that want to follow the law, follow God as closely as they can. They're the religious leaders. They're the ones that are going to teach other people how to follow the law. They're the ones that you're going to go to to learn about God. They were the good and faithful followers of God in, in Jesus' day. Um, and then, so that's on one side. We have the Pharisee. And far off over here, we have a tax collector, right? And again, same thing can happen. We've probably heard enough stories from Jesus to know that the tax collector often is the recipient of grace is often held up as the, the good one or whatever in a situation. But in Jesus' day, the tax collector was, was somebody of a terrible reputation. Um, again, we had the Roman Empire ruling over uh, the land, and one of the things empires do is they, they collect taxes. They fund the empire, the military, the government. They fund all of that by extracting wealth from the conquered nations. Um, and Rome had this very unique way of doing it. Instead of sending its own people to be a target of hostility, um, you know, an enemy amongst you, they recruited locals. And so a tax collector meant it was a person from within that community, uh, a, a Jewish person that was working for the empire. And there came perks, there was benefits, there was bonuses, there was a sense of security and safety working for the empire. And so what you've done is you've, you've traded your own people for a sense of security and wealth with the ruling people. You've traded identity with, with God's people for power and safety. And so when people saw tax collectors amongst them, they saw them as traitors. They saw them as people who have abandoned their heritage, their traditions, their families, their place as people of God. They've abandoned all of that to work for the empire. And not only have they abandoned it, but now they're doing the work of the empire, right? And taking money from the Jewish people, from God's people. And the way that tax collectors got paid was they would have to take more 
than what was due. So if, if you owed $100, let's say, just picking an arbitrary number, a tax collector would come and say, you owe $120. And he would take $5 off of that and send the 115 on the way up the road. And somewhere on down the road, somebody else would take five, and now you had $110. And that $100 would make it back to Rome, and the people that touched it along the way each got their little cut. But it starts with the tax collector overcharging. And that was just the way that it was done. And so the tax collector is a traitor. It's somebody that manipulates the system to gain personal wealth. Um, they weren't well received in their community. Um, and so the way that Jesus tells this story, we have the most religious, devoted superheroes of the time, right? Like these are the dedicated, you know, the, in, our, in our context would be Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, Sunday night, Wednesday night Bible study, and the, the, the Saturday morning men's breakfast. Like that's, he's there every time the doors are open. And he's leading it, and he's teaching others. And they're doing everything the Bible says to do. That's the Pharisee contrasted with this tax collector, right? So Jesus has brought these two people into the story that we would know already. Before, the, before anything even happened, just saying we have these two characters, you know who the good person is and you know who the bad person is. When Jesus tells the story, you would know the score already. It's Pharisees who go above and beyond the requirements of a holy life and a tax collector who abandoned the holy life to work for the empire. And they went to go pray together at the temple. Now, if you were hearing this story in the time of Jesus, you would already know, like I said, the score. And you should know who God is going to approve of and who God's going to reject. Whose prayer is going to be heard and whose prayer is not going to be heard. Who is going to be justified. Who, who's going to get God's approval. Who's going to get the gold star. And who's going to get sent away with nothing. Right, you'd think you would already know the score. And if you were hearing Jesus tell the story, you already know how the story should end. And that's where Jesus flips the script. The faithful religious person should be accepted by God and the sinner, the re- traitor, the one who rejected God should be rejected by God, right? Jesus flips the script when he introduces motivations. It's not just behaviors, but motivations, and Jesus twists the whole thing upside down when he says why they did what they did. The faithful Pharisee prays a prayer of thanksgiving. I thank God, he says, I am not a sinner. Um, and not just in some general abstract way, but I'm especially thankful I'm not a sinner like that tax collector over there. <laughs> thank God I'm not as bad as that guy. That's the Pharisee's prayer. The tax collector prays a prayer Requesting mercy and forgiveness, confessing his sin. So who do you think at this point in the story God is happier with? The prayer of someone who follows the rules and has dedicated his life to faithfully uh, living out the way that the rules teach him to live, but is filled with pride and judgment, condemnation of others. Or the prayer of a sinner who's turned his back on God's people, but has come in humility confessing his sin, seeking grace and mercy from God. If you had to pick at this point in the story who God was most happy with, who would be received well, could you do it? If God had to choose 
one person to say, I'm happier with this one at this point in the story? Would it be the person that goes to church every week, leads the Bible study, gives to the offering, and never gets in trouble, or the sinner who swindles his own people, rejects God, and tries to make his own life better using the empire? I hope at this point in the story you, you feel the tension, right? Because if you're, if you're listening to this, if, if you were listening to Jesus talk about this the first time, when he introduces the motivations, things get awkward. There's tension here. It's asking the question, and this is the question behind this, the question of who does God prefer? What does God desire most from his people? That's, that's what's underlying all of this. What does God want from his people more? Is God trying to get people to do the right things, to be good people, to modify their behaviors, to, to match some expectation? Or is God desiring for his people to seek God and God's mercy, regardless of their status? And that's the tension. What, what does God want from his people? And then Jesus resolves this tension by answering the question. He answers that question. So we're sitting back, we're listening, going, oh, what, does God, what does God want? Does he want Pharisees or does he want sinners praying for mercy and confessing sins? Jesus answers that question. But in doing so, in typical Jesus fashion, he creates a whole bunch more questions to, that don't have answers yet. Right? He raises so many other questions. Jesus says that the Pharisee will be humbled, but the tax collector went home justified. Now the word justified, it's not one that we use in everyday language. It's kind of a churchy word. And what it means in this context is right relationship. So this, this sinner, this tax collector who turned his back on God and God's people um, is the one that went home from the temple in right relationship. And you start thinking about what relationship? Relationship with God? Relationship with God's people? Like he's burned both of those bridges already. But Jesus says, this sinner went home justified. So Jesus says that the humble sinner who is seeking God's mercy has the right relationship with God, while the rule-following religious person does not. The plot twist, right? What you expected, what you thought you knew about God and the way that the script worked has now been flipped upside down. And we got a, a slide here, I think, um, that just, just summarizes what's going on here. Jesus preferred a sinner who was seeking God from a position of humility over a righteous rule keeper who thought that made him better than others. Oof. <laughs> Jesus made the hero of his story a sinner, a really bad sinner, someone who's turned his back on God and God's people, who was seeking God from a position of humility. That was the hero of the story, and the bad guy was a righteous rule keeper, a religious person, who thought that his religion made him better than others. 
And as, as Christians, as people that have grown up around the church or paying attention to the church, or maybe you're, you're new to faith and you're just kind of stepping into the church world and you've been tentative because of a lot of different reasons, maybe church intimidates you or Christians look weird from the outside, I get all of that. And so we look at the story where the religious, overly religious, legalistic person is criticized and the the meek sinner is, is elevated as the hero of the story. We look at that, and we need to be careful, though. We've, we need to be careful because we, we can all think of people, I think, that we've met like the Pharisee, whose, whose religion, um, they feel like it has put them on, on a solid foundation. The behaviors that they have, the things that they do, they put money in the offering, they do the X, Y, or Z, whatever religious thing, um, they think it puts them over and above others. We might think of people that we, we know who are like the Pharisee, people whose religious activity or adherence to certain rules, they think puts them in a different category of good, on the good person scale. Um, it becomes a source of pride or a place from which to judge others, a holier-than-thou attitude. We've run into people like this, have we not? And in, in fact, some people like this keep others away from the church. Or maybe you wouldn't be vulnerable or honest with them because you know if you told them something real about that you're struggling with, that they would use it against you at some point. I've had conversations, we'd, we do uh, the, these prayer altars every week, and I've had conversations over, over the years of people saying, I don't want people to think that there's, I'm doing something wrong if I go forward and ask for prayer. I don't want people wondering what sins I've committed or what's wrong with me if I go and ask for prayer. Because we're ex- worried about being vulnerable for people that will cast judgment. And so we hear these words about Jesus condemning and criticizing the Pharisee. <laughs> and we're like, I knew it. I knew those people were wrong. That's not what God wants, right? I knew God doesn't like that type of behavior. I knew that's not how Jesus wants Christianity to function. I know that God doesn't want his church to function that way. I don't want, I know God, I'm happy to hear Jesus condemn these people for doing Jesus uh, following the wrong way, for being Christians the wrong way, right? Thank God I'm not like that sinner over there. Where did we just hear that sentence? Just a moment ago, we heard somebody say, thank God I'm not like that sinner over there. Thank God I've got it figured out. And that person or those people over there are doing it wrong. Thank God I'm not like that sinner. Where did we just hear that sentence? It was the Pharisee. And so as we hear this condemnation, this criticism of the way somebody else is doing faith, we need to be careful because it's easy for us to become that Pharisee. Our faith might look different, the way that we go about it might look different, but the attitude, the motivation behind it might be the same. We need to be careful so that we don't become the Pharisee. Before we judge those that we know, that we've experienced, or just the general culture of church, we have to be careful and realize just how easy it is to have the exact same attitude that Jesus condemns. Behaviors might look different, but the heart, the motivation, the attitude is what Jesus is after here. 
And, and, and this story, this parable, is really bad news if we are Christians who think we've arrived. I used, to be, I used to be bad, I used to be this, whatever, but I have arrived, I've got it all figured out, this is the way that you're supposed to do it. If we think our religious practices somehow make us more important to God or better than other people, then, like Jesus says in his story, the proud will be humbled. If we use our faith or our trust or belief in Jesus to elevate ourselves, this story reminds us that God doesn't approve of what we're doing. But if we are willing to be honest with ourselves, to be transparent, to be vulnerable for a moment, this story should be and is really good news. If we don't let our insecurities or our fears about being good enough drive us, if we're not afraid that we don't measure up in the eyes of other people, if we're not driven by the need to put on a, a performative uh, kind of attitude or behavior when we're around other people because we're worried about what they think about us, if we don't let those insecurities and fear drive us and shape our lives, then we, like the tax collector, can see our own need for God's mercy and forgiveness. We, like the tax collector, can approach the altars of prayer with humility. We can be honest with God when we seek mercy and grace. We can admit that we don't do everything right, we don't have it all figured out, that we struggle and wrestle with many things in our lives. We can come before God confessing that. And that applies to both the challenges out there, whether it be you know, work or family or finances or, or the community you live in or stuff with family, you know, relationships, like you can say, oh, the things out there I don't have figured out or I'm, I'm making a mess of or I don't have all the answers. We can confess that, say, God, I need you in those things. But also our internal struggles in our hearts and our minds. Say, God, my attitude isn't what it should be what I think about and say about other people, even if I don't say it out loud, isn't what it should be. Maybe the internal struggle in our hearts and our minds need to be brought to God as well. And so we can approach God with the words of that tax collector. What a great confession. He says this, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's why every week we open up the altars for prayer. We invite people to pray every week. The right posture before God is always, I need God's grace and mercy. Right? If you get ever to the point where you get over the need for God's grace and mercy, you are treading into some dangerous territory. <laughs> the proper posture is, I need God's grace and mercy. The wrong posture, the wrong attitude is, I'm not like those people over there that need God. The right attitude, the right relationship towards God is our need and our dependence. And we never get over that. But there's something actually going on bigger here today than just whether we as individuals are proud uh, or humble when it comes to our faith. There's, there's actually a bigger dynamic happening here. The Pharisee had the wrong attitude towards God, right? Like this is, 
the way the story tells it, right? He had the wrong attitude. He was proud and he thought that he'd earned his place and that he was doing all the right things and that justified him. He thought his relationship with God was defined by that. He had the wrong attitude, the wrong posture towards God and what happened because of that? He had the wrong attitude and wrong posture towards others around him, right? Do you see that connection where he, not only was his attitude towards God wrong, but he viewed somebody that was praying and judged and condemned and criticized them. The wrong attitude towards God, the wrong posture towards God will create the wrong attitude and posture towards others. Do you see the connection? Jesus at one point says the two greatest commandments of of the law can be summed up, (laughs) all the commandments of the law can be summed up in, in these two simple ones. Love God, right, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and... Love your neighbor as yourself. The love of God is always connected with love of neighbor. And if we have the wrong attitude about who God is, then we'll have the wrong attitude about who our neighbor is. He went feeling justified because of himself and condemned and criticized his neighbor, this tax collector. The right relationship with God will always be connected to having the right relationship with others. Being in right relationship with God will always call us to see others from God's perspective. And so while this is a a sermon that could be all about not judging other people, don't be the Pharisee that judges the tax collector seeking mercy. I think that could have been a good sermon. Um, And it's also a sermon about being humble and honest before God, right? You don't need to put on Uh, performance. God knows your heart. He knows your mind. He knows more than you're willing to (laughs) reveal to him. He knows it already. So don't pretend, don't, you know, be vulnerable, be honest with God. That that could be a really great sermon. Um, And so while it's a sermon about not judging others, and it's a sermon about being humble and honest about our own natures, our need for God's mercy, it is also a sermon about being the church that God calls us to be. If God welcomes and celebrates honest and humble sinners who are truly seeking God, what do you think our attitude should be towards honest and humble sinners who are seeking God? If God discourages pride and judgment based on religious activities and pious legalism, what do you think our attitude should be towards pride and judgment? Uh, based upon legalistic application of religious dogma and rules. Would God welcome and celebrate humble sinners who came into our building this morning? Would God welcome and celebrate humble sinners who came here this morning seeking his grace and mercy? Would God welcome and celebrate Would God approve of those who sat in these chairs and sang these worship songs and prayed these prayers and read these scriptures with us this morning? Would would God welcome them? Would Jesus welcome into his presence a sinner who is honestly here seeking God? Would we? (laughs) And that's the plot twist showing up again. If Jesus says the hero of the story is the one who is seeking God, God in earnest, can we see that person as the hero of the story? We are in a series about being disciples who invite, encourage, and equip others to become disciples. That's what we've been doing for the past nine weeks and we'll do for another 
few more, three, four weeks. We're doing that. The reason we're doing a discipleship series right now is because I believe that reaching people who aren't Christians with the life-changing good news of Jesus is a primary mission for us at First Church. Reaching people who don't know Jesus and helping them get to know Jesus is a primary mission for us at First Church. That's what I believe. Do you believe that as well? That this is what we're supposed to be doing. And if we reach these people who don't know Jesus with an invitation to come to church or an invitation to hear the gospel, to know that Jesus is king and as king rules over their lives and offers forgiveness and grace and mercy, they hear that invitation and they choose to come here and participate in one of these worship gatherings, they are overcoming so many barriers just to get here. Just by simply walking through the doors. That's no small step. I mean, as, as a pastor who has, has gone to a few different churches over the last several years, it's never easy, even as a Christian, to walk in the doors of a new church. Some of you have made a transition lately, and while we believe the same Jesus, we teach the same thing, we read the same scriptures, walking through the door of a church for the first time is not easy. Now imagine if you were a non-Christian walking through the doors. Think of what it would take for you to get to that point where you're like, I think I need to be in church this morning. Think of what the motivation would be. Think of the questions. What's going to happen if I get there? What are they going to want from me? What if I'm not dressed right? What are, all the different barriers. What do I do with my kids? All the different questions that you might have. What, what is this praying thing? Why do we sing? Who sings in public anymore unless it's a concert? Like All these barriers they have overcome just to get in the doors. Coming to church as a non-Christian is a huge deal. So church... What are we going to do when tax collectors walk through the door? What are we going to do when honest and humble people, sinners, come walking through the door seeking Jesus? They might come through saying, I, I tried to find happiness in my job. I tried to find satisfaction in my, in my relationships. I tried to find fulfillment in, in, in materialistic things. I've tried the ways of the world and it has not satisfied. It didn't work and so I've come to the last place I can think to go and I've got baggage that I'm bringing with me. And it doesn't look pretty but I'm here because I, I'm hoping you can find, I can find what I'm looking for. What are we going to do when tax collectors like that walk through the doors of First Church honestly seeking mercy? Because most likely they will walk through the doors, they will introduce themselves, they will come and be a part of a worship gathering, but they won't know all the unspoken rules. They might sit in your chair. (laughs) They might not know what to do with a bulletin. They won't know the standards of behavior. They won't know when to stand up or sit down. They won't know the words to the songs we're singing. They won't know what the pastor's doing up here with people that are kneeling. They won't know the right words to say. They won't know the behavior. And honestly, we know them as the church. We know the right things, and we still struggle with them sometimes, right? (laughs) Even though we know all the rules, we still don't get them right, for being honest and humble. So people walking through the doors, they might not act and look the way we would want them to. 
They won't know what to say or do to be part of our religious service. The songs will be unfamiliar. The scriptures will be foreign for some. So what are we going to do when these people come through our doors looking for good news, looking for a place to belong, looking for people who will accept them and love them and care for them and point them in the right direction? What are, they going to, what are we going to do when someone comes looking for a place to find hope and peace and healing that they haven't been able to find anywhere else? Are we going to be like the Pharisees? and believe that getting the rules right, doing the right religious activities is what gets us closer to God. Because these unchurched people aren't going to come here knowing and doing the right things. Or are we going to agree with Jesus? It's usually a good idea, just FYI, pro tip, agree with Jesus when you have the chance. Are we going to agree with Jesus and declare that a sinner who is earnestly seeking God is welcome and honestly to be celebrated? The right attitude towards God is not one of pride in our activities, but of humility in our seeking of God's grace and mercy. And as, as a pastor, I'll be the first one to admit, I would love for every person to walk through the doors to walk in fully sanctified, looking like Jesus. Like life would be so much easier. If, if before coming to a church, everybody got their baggage figured out, dealt with their, you know, whatever, trauma from childhood or, or relationship stuff or the problems with work or family. Like if they walk through the door, having all that sorted out, life would be pretty easy as a pastor, right? But it doesn't work that way. And it's not intended to, right? That's not our mission as a church. We're not, we're not here to be a gathering place for religious people, a social experience for people that have all the rules figured out but rather a church is a community of people gathered together because we share faith, trust, hope, allegiance to King Jesus. And sometimes, as people gather together, it creates conflicts, tensions, differences of experiences, differences of opinions, different expectations, right? The more people you put in the room, the more opinions and ideas and thoughts we have. And along the way, over the years in different churches, I've had conversations with people who want the pastor to be the gatekeeper, to keep the scorecard, make sure that the sinners don't get too far in the door. And I wrestle with this as a pastor at times because I am, as a senior pastor, responsible for a lot, for the well-being of the church. I'm responsible uh, for the teaching and practicing of biblical guidelines, there's denominational rules. We're a Nazarene church, which means there's certain things that we do and we don't do. And it's not up to me to just pick which ones I like or not as a pastor. Like, there's things, biblical and denominational things, that I'm responsible for. I'm supposed to teach, administer. There's standards of Christian behavior, and that's a good thing. But I also know that everyone, as Romans 3, verse 23 tells us, everyone falls short of the glory of God. And so everyone that walks through the door of a church brings with them struggles, sins, temptations, wounds, baggage, poor choices, whatever. They bring that with them. And a church that is legalistic, a church that is judgmental, only forces people to hide their issues deeper or they just avoid church altogether. And so I believe God is calling us to be a church that is comprised of disciples, who make disciples, right? That's what we're doing in this sermon series. 
which means that we welcome sinners who come through our doors seeking God. We take the responsibility of the mission of helping those who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. (laughs) That's what we do. I believe God is calling us to be a church that is comprised of disciples who make disciples. Otherwise, I don't think we're necessarily being faithful to what God's called us to be and do. And I'll tell you from the beginning, it is messy. <laughs> when we ask people to bring whatever they have with them, it, it's a wide open invitation. We will have people who don't behave how we want them to behave or they don't believe things we want them to believe. That doesn't mean anything goes, so don't hear me say that this morning. I get accused of that sometimes. It's not what I'm saying. There's no rules, no standards. That's not what I'm saying. But I believe First Church is to be a church where unchurched people feel welcome. I believe something else as well, and this is really what motivates all of this. So if, you, if you've heard this this morning as like a criticism of church culture, that's not really where I'm going, although there's some critique that is warranted. But what I'm about to say next is ultimately what I wanted to share with you this morning. Jesus hung out with all kinds of sinners, right? We read through the Gospels, he hung out with all kinds of sinners. But by the time Jesus was finished with them, these people weren't the same people. They were different than they were before. So spending time with Jesus, near Jesus, hearing Jesus, being with Jesus is what transformed and changed their life. Jesus changes people. Do you believe that? Jesus changes people. Jesus came to transform people, not to indulge them, right? And so he said, well, yes, I'll have a a meal with this sinner, but I'm not gonna let them stay in sin forever. Yes, I'm gonna have an encounter where I criticize and condemn the judgmental, legalistic people, but then I'm gonna go talk to the sinner and say, go and sin no more. Jesus transforms people. And honestly, that's why I'm a Nazarene. There was a a optimism, a a hope of what the Holy Spirit can do in the life of somebody that drew me in. I didn't grow up in the Nazarene church. I encountered it as a student in college and I heard of the sanctification thing, which is a fancy way of saying that the Holy Spirit changes people's lives. And we as Nazarene talk about entire sanctification. God can do such a work in you that you are fully transformed from your sinful nature into the one God would have for you to have. Not only do we believe that God tells us how to live, but we believe that through the Holy Spirit we are able to live that way. And in our day and age, so many people are caught on the question, um, can the Bible be believed? Right, we get caught up, can it be true? Is it, and I'm caught up on the question, I hope you start to get caught up on the question, is can the Bible be lived out? Can we follow Jesus? Not only do we believe that God tells us how to live, but we believe God empowers us, transforms us. And the truth is, it's hard to disciple somebody that we don't know. It's hard to have a a relationship with somebody that is not a part of our faith community. And so the challenge, the invitation for us today is to welcome those seeking God. And then trust that God will use a relationship with the church and maybe even you 
when I first felt called into ministry, I thought it was a bold thought. <laughs> God, you're going to use me to do what now? Like, I understand when you hear that, that God wants to use you to change somebody's life. It can feel overwhelming. It can feel impossible at times. But number one, God isn't asking you to do that by yourself. That's why we're here together as a church. God might even use us together to lead to transformation, redemption, to sanctification, to healing and wholeness in other people's lives. Discipleship doesn't happen just in a program where we share information about Jesus, but and here's the last truth. I'm going to, trying to land the plane here real quick, but here's the last truth that I want you to walk away thinking today. Discipleship happens in relationships that shapes and form people to be more like Jesus. There are people who are lost and trying to find answers. They're trying to find healing and joy and purpose and all kinds of things. Right now, there are people out in our communities that are searching for something and they don't even know to look to Jesus for those answers. We know the good news they are looking for. The easy thing for us to do is to tell people to get cleaned up. Get your story figured out, get it all cleaned up, sorted out, and then you can come be a part. But the truth is that a loving, faithful community of Jesus followers is the best place for someone who is seeking God. The church is the best place for somebody who is seeking God. And when you say it that way, it sounds obvious, right? (laughs) Will we be that community for them? Can we be that community of people that say, come? Like I said, Jesus thinks those are the heroes, the ones that can come honestly, humbly before him and say, I just need God's grace and mercy. Those are the heroes of the story. (laughs) Can we see that? Can we be the community that invites them to be those heroes 